this morning, if you will, turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. I made a commitment that whenever I had opportunity to preach that I would um, stick with one book and started in 1 Timothy 4 about a year ago and now um, jumped back into 1 Timothy 1 back in the fall for two Sundays. And we're going to recap and get some context before we move into verse 12. That'll be our focus text today is 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. Before we do that, I want to pray, and uh, if you would pray for me for clarity and that we would understand the gospel more today and that we would uh, be convicted and that we would worship in response to what we hear. And uh, I want to pray for another couple of churches in our area as well. Would y'all pray with me? God, I'm thankful that you brought us back again to revisit, to be reminded to be renewed, and you saw fit to bring us and gather us here together to rest again on Sabbath and get Sabbath rest, and I pray that we all understand that more fully today. Grateful for the gospel this morning. Grateful for the truth and for the real rest that it is. God, I'm also very grateful today for Tony Brown at Faith Baptist Church in Quinlan, and for what seems to be a very like-minded pastor who has a burden for getting the gospel right, for raising disciples, for maturing the church and purifying the church through the word. And God, my prayer for Tony this morning is that uh, he would enjoy the sowing of the seed of the gospel this morning without feeling the burden of being only a reaper, that he would truly enjoy the sowing of the gospel and that he would not feel a burden to manufacture any sort of fruit in people's lives, but he would trust the gospel that he sows this morning and enjoy it. And God, I want to pray for... David Ferguson and C3 and their family as this week he lost his mom and had a baby in the same day. And I pray for he and Whitney that you would um, recall in their minds, help them to remember what is theirs in Christ. Remind them uh, what you've already done. And Jesus, we know you can do anything. And we confess that and we want to cling to that. But that you would maximize their sleep, that you would give David clarity as he's dealing with family and his church and a new baby. Give him rest physically and give him your perspective on this, that you are not caught off guard, but that you are in complete control. And even though I've heard that out of David a million times, I I pray that you would remind him of it even now. And God, we we surrender this time to you and your spirit and that you would speak clearly through your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you will, turn back to the first part of 1 Timothy 1. I want to get us some context for what's going on here. You may or may not remember. You may have not been here. So 
I want to give us a quick overview, and I want to start in verse 3. We're going to read just a little bit of the first half of this chapter 1 to get a picture and a feel and a context for what's happening. Why is Paul writing this, and why is he saying the things he's saying in verse 12 through 17? We need to understand what's happening. And um, what's happening is that these men have come into leadership of the church. They're standing before the people preaching and teaching. And they are primarily attempting to be impressive and gain a following. That's it. That's their primary intent for standing before the people of God is to say things that are impressive and gain a following. And that's it. So let's read in verse 3. And we're going to hear a warning for Paul. And then the sermon today will be his response to this warning, his follow-up. Writing to Timothy, Paul says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now, when you hear that any different doctrine, don't be intimidated. Don't think, I, I'm not real doctrinal. If that's you, don't tune out. Because for Paul, good doctrine is really simple, and we'll see that. Good doctrine is really simple. It's just not getting things out of order. And good doctrine is real simple. So don't be intimidated by words like doctrine and good sound doctrine. Don't, don't, don't walk away from that. And he tells them, do not teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Basically, loving preachers love the people of God with the gospel. That's it. They don't love the people of God with entertaining them or keeping their attention. That's not how you love people. You don't love people by making them feel better about themselves. You don't love people by keeping their attention. That's not the goal. The goal is to love them with the same truth. Go back revisit, remind, restore, renew in their hearts a very simple, sound doctrine of the gospel. And we're going to see what that is in just a minute. Loving preachers love people with the gospel. And that's it. That's central. That's the main line. He goes on to say in verse 6, certain persons by swerving from these, swerving from these sound doctrines, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So that's the context. As we enter into verse 12, you need to know that Paul has great angst and great tension and there's a lot of urgency here. And it's because there are people standing before the church and they are trying to be impressive and they're trying to gain a following and that's their only intent. And Paul says, you tell them to stop. And Paul's response is very interesting. But I want, I want you to just kind of climb into this tension and urgency. Paul's not there with them physically. And so that makes, it's very... It makes him very anxious. And I imagine if you can't be with your people who you're trying to teach, who you want to make sure they don't lose the faith, and you can't be with them, you're having to do it through a letter. A lot of, ang lot of anxiety here for Paul. Angst, tension, desire for them to get this right. These pastoral epistles are about the church 
God's design for it being done right, the gospel being right, rightly proclaimed. So there's a lot of tension here. And I want you to know, I feel this tension with him. I feel this angst very personally. Having lived and observed my life, having lived and observed the fallout of preaching and teaching that is not Christ-centered, gospel-centered, seeing misuse of the law, uninformed teaching of the law and grace, uninformed teaching of the church and about the church, lives lived out in ideas and opinions and desires that surround Christianity that are not gospel-centered, it's a fine, here, hear me, it's a fine blurry line between false teaching and truth. It can be a fine and a very blurry line between false teaching and truth. And that is what drives Paul's angst here and his tension. Having lived it, having been and sat here and other places and grabbed pulpits where I wasn't gospel-centered, there's angst looking back over that. There's tension where the power of the preached gospel and the word-saturated teaching is not revered, where this is not revered, where a going back to the gospel, a going back every week to the gospel is not revered, but what else do you got is revered? You got to give me something else to keep me here, to keep my attention. You got to give me something else besides the same truth that I'm bankrupt and I need Jesus. That, there's got to be something more. And, and having bought that lie, there's great tension for me. And being surrounded by it, there's great tension and angst. Having preached a misinformed gospel, having lived out in the confusion and the division and the uncertainty, I'm feeling this angst and this tension and this urgency. And so Paul says, he places great importance on sound doctrine. And that was very simple for Paul. Many teachers preached and would go on and about about these historical facts and these genealogies so that they could be impressive and gain a following. And then he ends this section with the law is good. Why? Why is the law good? Why is God's expectations for us, which we cannot attain, why is it good to know those? Because they point us to the fact that we can't do it. And so he says the law is good. But if you stop there, it's not good. The law is good when it points you to a glorious gospel of grace. The law is good when it turns you to a glorious gospel gospel of grace that says, you're right. You can't do it. Trust Jesus. That sounds so simple. That is what Paul's talking about here when he says sound doctrine. It's very simple. You are bankrupt. Jesus can do anything. And he is full of mercy and grace. That's it. Period. You can't look anywhere else. You have nowhere else to go. There is no other story. There's nothing to pile on. Nothing for you to do. Trust Jesus. So look at verse 12. We're going to read 12 down through the end of the chapter, 1 Timothy 1. And I want you to look at Paul's response. There's been a warning against false teaching. And here is his response. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength... Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. 
but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and it's deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the sentence for the morning. When he says, this saying is trustworthy, he's saying, listen, pay attention. Listen up. Here's what it boils down to. Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Verse 17, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And we'll stop there. So here's, here's Paul's response to, if I'm going to warn you against these guys who are trying to be impressive and gain a following, here's, here's my response. Here's the contrast. And what Paul does is seemingly to me like a resume. He's basically saying, okay, don't listen to those guys, but here's why you should listen to me. You know those little manila folders that everybody puts a resume in? I, I forgot to get one, but if I had a manila folder with me and I put my resume in there, what my resume would have if I was trying to get a job here, it would have everything that would impress you. I want to make a good first impression. So I put in that resume everything, really the best about me, and maybe some things that are mostly true about me so that you'll be impressed, so that you'll give me a shot. You'll give me a chance. And here's what Paul puts in his resume. Look at verse 12 again. Here's my resume. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. He has judged me faithful. Here's my resume. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Not impressive. In fact, he's saying, not only am I not impressive, I am opposed to this. Here's why you should listen to me. Jesus. That's why you should listen to me. Jesus. That's it. He can do anything. He's unbelievably merciful and patient. And here's why you should listen to me. Jesus. Not my history. Not my training. Not the people I know. Not the way I dress. Not the way I speak. Not because I'm good at speaking. And I can't really turn around and say there's a lot of people really following me necessarily. But here's why you should listen to me. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's why you should listen to me. And so that's his resume. He offers up this bag of nothing. And in contrast is Jesus. If you turn to Philippians chapter 3, I want to I show you a little bit more of what he's saying here. He expounds on this in Philippians 3. It's very similar. You know, Paul is not afraid of using strong language. Blasphemy, persecution of the church, an opponent of God is what he calls himself. Those are pretty strong language. If you were to come up and call anybody that today, that would be hurtful. That would be attention-getting. Those are pretty strong words. He uses some more strong language in Philippians chapter 3. Listen to his resume. Listen to what he says here. 
and verse 4, Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, and think in terms of his manila folder that he's going to present to why you should listen to him. Though I myself, verse 4, Philippians chapter 3, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, also if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. That's not a bad thing. He was a noble dude. He knew a lot. He had his act together. All of his junk was in a row. He had his act together. Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, I got it, Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, under the law, blameless. I kept my nose clean, brothers and sisters. If anybody was going to boast, it was me. My nose was clean. My hair was parted just right. All my kids acted perfectly. Not Paul, but that's, that would be the illustration. Nothing was going wrong for me. I had my act together. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as, most Bibles say, rush, rubbish, if you have the ESV, trash, garbage, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. So Paul says, my resume, if anybody has anything to boast in, it's me. But here's the resume I want you to see. All of my resume is rubbish. The Greek word scubalot. Some scholars believe that that's just a nice way of saying a really bad word. And while I would love to be able to use some harsh language up here just for emphasis, I'm not going to. You think of garbage, dung. Many scholars are pretty convinced that he was using this for emphasis. And it was probably a little bit offensive to people. So, in light of not using harsh language and strong language, I want to pound this into our heart and our brain this morning. So I grabbed some synonyms from my trusty thesaurus. Here's some words that might resonate with you. When you think about your resume that you bring to this table, this communion table, where God meets us, when you think about your resume, here's what Paul says his resume is. It's rubbish. Bunk. Garbage. This word was really in there. Gobbledygook. Baloney. Hooey. Nonsense. Tomfoolery. And hogwash. And if you love the Puritans and you like Puritan language, they have one probably where we get tomfoolery. They call it Tommy Rot. So you can hang on to that word. We, we, need, we need these words in our wheelhouse because this is the reminder and the revisit and the renewal that we need this morning. We need the reminder. Here's our resume. Here's what we're bringing. We're bringing hogwash. We are bringing to the table this morning Tommy Rod, gobbledygook, bunk. That's what we're bringing. And knowing this, Paul is so done with trying to be impressive. He's so done with posing. 
He's so done with trying to please people and gain a following. He's done. And so his response to false teaching is this. Let me go back. Start over here, people. Listen. Hogwash. Jesus. Blasphemer, persecutor, and opponent of the church. But Jesus. That is the central theme. If we were building concrete, it'd be the steel rod. That's it. That's what we go back to and start over with. Every week, every day, every moment. Okay, let's go back. How are we going to see the situation? How are we going to live this life? Okay, let's go back. What's my resume? Hogwash. Jesus is unbelievable. He can do anything. That's where we start. That's our response. And that's the lens with which you hear preaching and teaching. If you're not hearing that, then you need to think very long and hard about what you're hearing. Because nothing else is good news. Nothing else is the gospel. That is the starting point. That is why we are not, listen, progressing. We're not progressing. Because we're constantly having to go back and revisit and renew and remember and be reminded. And Paul gladly owns his blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, ignorant and unbelieving status. But Jesus saves. Jesus opened my eyes. In 1 Corinthians 1.17, he said this. Listen, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Preach what gospel? This Hogwash is what I bring, and Jesus can do anything. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Listen, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So you can be really good with people. You can be really good at being a dad. You can be really good at family time. You can be really good at loving and serving your wife. You can be good at lots of things. You can even be getting better at some things. But without the gospel, without the knowledge and the remembering and the reminding that what you bring is gobbledygook and that Jesus can do anything and that he is the one to receive the glory, without that, you've robbed the cross of its power if you're just wanting to get better at things. Paul says, I didn't come with eloquent wisdom because eloquent wisdom and clever speech and being impressive and posing and so people think this way about me, you know what that does? That gets in the way of the message of the cross. So you have to drop your pose. You know what that means, dropping the pose? You're, you're, You're dropping any kind of image that you would want people to think about you that may or may not be true, but it will be impressive. So we've got to drop it. I don't want you to think things about me and be impressed with me Because if you think those things and you don't know the truth, you don't know my gobbledygook, you don't know my hogwash, I've just robbed the cross of its power. And I want you to see my junk and my bunk and my garbage. Why? Because Jesus. And he'll be put on display when you see it. And I drop my pose. Paul has embraced it. Impressive, clever, with the intention of being impressive and gaining a following, always gets in the way. Jesus and his finished work are central and they are sufficient. Because Jesus can do anything. He can bring the dead to life. He can restore. He can heal. He can renew. 
He can take an opponent and turn that opponent into a friend. That's what he did with Paul. That's what he did with you and me. He can take an opponent and turn him into a friend. He takes the ignorant and he gives them understanding. Not many of us have been to seminary in this room, but there's worship. He can take ignorant and turn it into understanding. Jesus can take the unbeliever and then he gives them belief. He can do it. Jesus can take the doubter and he can help them believe. In Mark 9, when that man comes to Jesus with the demon-possessed son, and it's in Mark 9, he, he says this phrase to Jesus. Jesus, he's dropping his pose. He's got a son that's convulsing and throwing himself into the fire. It, it's, it's not real impressive. You know, he's probably pretty embarrassed by the fact that his son has been overtaken by a demon. And he comes and he drags it out into the light in front of everybody in Jesus and says, Jesus, my son needs help. He says this phrase, if you can, Jesus, heal him. And you know what Jesus' response was? You can, you can look it up in Mark 9. If I can, if I can, oh, I can, if you believe. And that man's response was, I believe, help my unbelief. So what does Jesus do? Sends him on his way, heals his son. Jesus takes all of our hogwash, all of our unbelief, all of our doubts, everything, and he turns them into belief. He takes opponents and he makes them friends. And Paul gets this. Paul understands that. And that is what Paul goes back to in verse 12. I was an opponent and now I'm a friend. Why? Because of Jesus. It's not that impressive when you look at me. It's real impressive when you look at what Jesus has done. When we stray, when we start to drift from this central truth, when we get away from this, we will cease to believe that Jesus really can do anything. I want you to get that. When we stray from this truth like we don't really need it anymore, like, well, I got it when I was nine, but... I, I don't need you to keep telling me that I got hogwash. I don't need you to keep telling me that Jesus is sufficient. When we get away from that, what we will do is we will rely on ourselves and how we're progressing as believers, and we will not believe that Jesus can really do anything. The avenue to believing that Jesus really can do everything is being reminded and being, re being reminded and renewing our minds that we have gobbledygook and He can do anything. That's the only way that we'll really see and trust and believe is the constant going back, the constant reminder. All of his confidence, Paul's, is found in Christ. He says that in verse 12. I thank him who gives me strength. I can't do ministry without Jesus. He started this thing and he's sustaining me. That's what he's saying there. And so the glory of Jesus is put on display. And having this constant revisiting, constant renewing, constantly going backwards, having that as our mindset and our movement, having the mindset, having the view that simple gospel truth that we're bringing hogwash to this communion table today, and that Jesus brings patience, mercy, faith, and love, is really good news because of the next verse. Look at 14. It's really good news because of verse 14. 1 Timothy 1, verse 14.
The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Remember, listen up, pay attention. I am as confident about this as I am anything. Listen to this. This is it. This is the main beam running down the concrete. This is it right here. Listen. Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And it's good news that I know the law. It's good news that I know I don't live up. Why? Because when I know I don't live up, I know I'm a sinner. And I also know that I'm the one Jesus came for. The gospel is for me. The gospel is not for the impressive. Remember Paul said that that the law is not for the righteous and the just. It's for the sinner who knows they're a sinner. And the the prerequisite for receiving the grace is to know you need it. And that's what the law tells me. And it reminds me that I'm a sinner. And I know this. It's trustworthy. Listen, Jesus came to save sinners. That's good news. Now, there's there's something that's absent here. It it doesn't say that Jesus came to uh, help sinners improve. Jesus did not come to help sinners manage their sin. He didn't come to help you gloss over and make your sin look a little better so that more people will come to Jesus. He came to save sinners completely, finally, fully, sufficiently. Save sinners. Not help them gloss over their sin and improve. That's good news. And then he says in verse 15, of which I am the foremost. What does that even mean? This foremost of sinners. Does it mean that Paul is confident that of all people in all of history, I'm the worst? He's not grading himself. He's not ranking himself. What what he's saying is there's a real awareness that according to me, I'm the worst sinner. Now, when I was putting my notes together, I I put foremost of sinners and I put F-O-S. FOS. Foremost of sinners. A foremost of sinners atmosphere. FOS atmosphere. What does a FOS atmosphere look like? If I think I'm the foremost of sinners, watch this, and you think you're the foremost of sinners, what does that make way for? Not much can come between us. Remember the unity that Jesus prayed in John 17 for us? That's that's a result and an overflow of foremost of sinners clinging to Jesus. And it's very difficult for me to put a pose up in front of you if you know that I know that I'm the foremost of sinners and I know that you know that you're the foremost of sinners. That's going to create an atmosphere that does a lot of things. Scott said I should have titled the sermon Phosmosphere. But I didn't go with that. But what creates Phosmosphere? What does that? I know, I think I'm the worst. You think you're the worst. Jesus gets put on display because we're both clinging to him. A foremost of sinners atmosphere does a lot and it keeps us from trying to impress each other all the time. Phosmosphere keeps us from leaving worship today and trying to make something out of ourselves. I want you to hear that again. A foremost of sinners atmosphere among the believers keeps us from leaving here today and going and trying to make something out of ourselves. We leave here trusting Jesus. 
not going trying to make something out of ourselves. It keeps us humble and gentle, that's for sure. And you know what else? This foremost of sinners atmosphere smells really good to hurting lost folks. It's attractive to some. Some will smell that and say, whew, that's life. I want more of that. And you know what foremost of sinners atmosphere really produces is it keeps all of us from believing the lie that we don't need the gospel anymore. It keeps us from believing the lie that I don't need the gospel again on Tuesday. That, you know, I, I, I've already got the gospel, but you didn't give me anything to help make my life better this week. There was no self-improvement, four steps to self-improvement today. Because you're not getting any better. And there's a real void of this in Paul's writings. There's a real void of this in Scripture. And this is, this is what I want you to see. If you've hung in this far, hang in with me here. Really watch this. There is a void in Scripture, particularly in Paul's writings, of any indication that we're improving as individuals or progressing. There's a difference between progressing as individuals and maturing, and I want to show you the difference. There's a difference between progressing as individuals and maturing as believers. We have to know the difference because it will mean we'll understand how to leave here today. Turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Paul talks about in this chapter, many of you probably are familiar with this verse, where he talks about move on from milk and get some meat. And in my mind, that was the first thing I thought of when I think, I'm not progressing, nobody's progressing. What is progressive? What is making spiritual progress? Nobody's getting any better at sin. The first thing I thought of was this verse, and it's interesting to me. Look at the title if you have titles at the top of verse 11. This is a warning against apostasy. Now, let me, let me just break that word down for you just so everybody understands. This is a warning against leaving the faith. Okay? This is not about progressing. This is about not leaving, not bailing out, remaining faithful. Look at what he says here. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. When I hear that now, I hear, not the gospel again. Are you kidding me? More of this Jesus and I'm bankrupt stuff again? Really? Become dull of hearing. Verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So we mature. Why? To get better? No. We mature so that we won't leave. We mature so we'll stay. If you don't grow in your understanding and you don't whet your appetite for the more facets and angles of this beautiful gospel story that we have, cover to cover... If our appetite is not wet for more angles, facets, avenues, particulars, you know what I mean? More parts of the story that you get and you learn about. The fancy word for that is doctrines, particulars. The, the more doctrines that you get, the more mature 
your faith. It makes you remain faithful for longer. If you neglect to continue to unpack more of this story, more doctrines, you're putting yourself in a position to leave. But if it's not constantly going back and starting with, you're bankrupt and we all need Jesus, then it's going to create a people who know a lot of stuff about the Bible but are arrogant. That's what it'll produce in us. If we don't remember, remind, go back and remember that we need him, it'll produce a people who know a lot of stuff about the Bible but are very arrogant. The word sanctification. Now, if there's another big word. Don't be intimidated by it. For some of us, we think of sanctification. We think, okay, Jesus justified me by the cross, and now he's sanctifying me. We think sometimes, I know I have, I've been justified I've been made right by Jesus, but now he's making me better. Not what sanctification means. Rightly translated, a better definition for sanctification is to legitimize something. Did you hear that? Legitimize. If I'm being sanctified, I'm becoming more legit. As he sanctifies me, he is making me and giving me more legitimacy in this faith. Not improving, not getting better, but my faith is becoming more real and more true. Things that are legitimate, things that are legit, are faithful for the long haul, and they stay in it. And that's what maturity, that's what grabbing more particulars, that's what going to the Old Testament and looking for Jesus there will do. That's what understanding what Revelation means and is saying. That's grabbing all of these truths will do is it will open your eyes to more of the gospel. But without that central truth of knowing that you bring nothing to the table, it just makes you arrogant. So we're not getting better. You're not getting better at handling sin. Maturity may mean you have more knowledge, more awareness. But without your need for that overflowing grace, it's going to take us all to our high seat. Turn to Romans chapter 7. This is the last one I'll have you turn to. Romans chapter 7. In light of Hebrews chapter 5, we are to be maturing... We're to be learning more about this gospel story because that will keep us from leaving. Now, Romans chapter 7, listen to what Paul says in verse 14. Now, as I read this, as we read this together, I want you to watch for a few things. Watch for Paul admitting any sort of progress as an individual. Watch for Paul as he goes back again, and what does he revisit? What does he keep going back to? What does he keep revisiting? And then look for the relief that Paul gets at the end. Look for the champion. Who's impressive? Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do everything that I hate. The very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. 
that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Verse 18 is key. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. You hearing any progress here? (laughs) I'm not hearing any kind of progress or I'm getting better at this. Or this is why you should listen to me because I'm really good. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. There's a war going on here. That's where we're going next week. There's a battle raging. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's your champion. There's your victor. There's your impressive right there. But you don't get there unless you wade through, I'm doing what I don't want to do. I don't do what I want to do. Wretched man that I am. Then you come to the champion, Jesus. Do you see it? That's the gospel. That's the main truth. That's sound doctrine. And then he finishes with, So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I am not getting better. I have to constantly go back and trust Jesus. Do you see it? There is no progress. There's maturity, but there's not progress. Tulian Tavijan is a pastor in Florida, that, uh, a young pastor that I'm, I've been just reading after a little bit. He's written a few things, and um, he has this quote on sanctification that I just mentioned about sanctification legitimizing us. Listen to this. Sanctification, our legitimacy, involves God's attack on our unbelief. Our self-centered refusal to believe that God's approval of us in Jesus is final and full. It happens as we daily, hear that, daily receive and rest in Jesus. Sanctification happens when you daily, weekly, every hour rest in Jesus. Sanctification involves God's attack on our unbelief. Our unbelief of what? That Jesus really has saved us finally and fully. That he really is sufficient. That's what we have to fight to remember. We have to fight to go back and revisit And when you think about this, think about God's creation. Think about creation for just a minute. The seven days, right? Everybody knows we have a seven-day schedule, seven days of creation. On the seventh day, what did God do? He rested. And for us, that has so many more implications than just physical rest. What God is teaching us there in his design in Genesis is that you're going to need to go back to something, and you're going to need to rest in it. You're going to work all week, and Sunday is more than just a day off work. Sunday is more than just a great day to fish or play golf. It may be those things. But it's not just that. Physical rest. It's not just a good day for family time. He designed Sunday and the Sabbath not just for a good day to spend time with your kids. But it's ultimate 
Now hear that. Ultimate spiritual rest as we go back and we remember and we revisit that Jesus can do anything. He's sufficient. He's turned opponents into friends. And it's final. And it's complete. And I don't leave trying to make something out of myself. I leave trusting him more. That's rest. And that's why we come here on Sundays to rest. Revisit. Remember. It's a reset. You know when you hit the reset button on those electrical outlets? Those are that drive me nuts. When you can't figure out why it's working, you forget. Why do you forget? Well, you forget there's a reset button. And this is what this is for us. Corporate worship is a reset. Remember, folks, you're not trying to make something out of yourselves. We're trusting Jesus here, and that's rest. I don't have to keep working at making something out of myself and impressing everybody. I don't have to do that. You think you're the foremost of sinners, and I think I'm the foremost of sinners. Whew, okay, good. We don't have to try and impress each other anymore. That's rest. There's this guy named Gerhard Ford that I've also been reading, and I, don't, I hope I'm saying his name right. He was a professor at Luther Seminary in Minnesota, and he led the Reformed Evangelical Movement away from a liberal Lutheran movement back in about 20 years ago. He died in 2006. But this guy who died, I think he was in his late 60s, he really gets this. He really understands this. I'm not progressing. I'm just trusting Jesus more. And the dropping the pose and the transparency that I'm foremost of sinners. L listen to this man in his 60s right before he died. Listen to him. Am I making progress? If I'm really honest, it seems to me that question is odd, even ridiculous. As I get older and death draws nearer, I don't seem to be getting better. I get a little more impatient. I get a little more anxious about having perhaps missed what life had to offer me. I'm a little slower. It's harder to move around. I'm a little more sedentary, and I'm very much set in my ways. Am I making progress? Well, maybe it seems as though I sin less, but that may only be because I'm getting tired. It's just too difficult to keep indulging in the lusts of youth. Is that sanctification? I wouldn't think so. One should not, I expect, make the mistake that encroaching senility for sanctification. Now, let me... Most of you got that. I didn't. I had to look up some words. Encroaching senility. Just because I'm getting old and a little bit loopy doesn't mean I'm getting better. Don't mistake those. Just because I'm setting my ways in a little crazy, that doesn't mean I'm being sanctified. You hear the transparency in him here? I'm not getting better. But can it be, listen, here's the cool part, but can it be perhaps that it is precisely the gift of grace that helps me see it and admit it to you? Could it be that grace is what helps me know that at 68 years old to say, I admit that. I'm not getting any better. I just trust Jesus more. The grace of God should lead us to see the truth about ourselves and to gain a lucidity. That means clarity. Gain a real clarity about the truth about ourselves. And it should give us a humor and a down-to-earthedness. 
That's what I'm praying for, for us. You think you're the foremost of sinners? Oh, good. I think I am. Okay, good. Down to earth, we got to laugh at each other because it shouldn't surprise us that opponents of God, only saved by Jesus, are going to make mistakes. Now, do I expect you to cling to Jesus and gather more knowledge and particulars and doctrines and are we pushing each other? Yes. But it shouldn't mistake, it shouldn't surprise me when you make mistakes. It shouldn't surprise me when you hurt me. It shouldn't surprise me when you fail. It shouldn't surprise me. It shouldn't surprise you when I do. Look, cardinals do not have their act together. There it is. We don't. Show up at bedtime at our house. I entitled this message, Still Here, Still Need Jesus. And there was a guy that started a church, kind of like Crosspoint did. It was a church replant in Vermont named Jared Wilson. And um, he put this on his church sign. It made me wish we still had one. Um, maybe, th- maybe his church doesn't have Jeff Ott in a tractor. Maybe that's why they still have a sign. But we, if we had a sign again, this is what I would want to put up there and never change it again. Still here, still need Jesus. Still here via our maturity. Still here because we're digging deep. Still here because we're grasping for particulars and sound doctrine. But still need Jesus. Still here. Still need Jesus. I hope we can continue to drop the pose. I wonder about small group shepherds. If you feel intimidated and uptight when you head into that small group shepherds meeting that you need to impress people with how you've gathered. I know things and this is going to be really good and you're going to love it. You spend more time there or do you go at it with, man, I'm the foremost of sinners. I'm not putting up any pose. I had a hard week. I didn't understand part of this. You know, there's a transparency, a lucidity, a certain humor, and a down-to-earthedness that we must possess. And foremost of sinners do that. Drop the pose, shepherds, dads, moms. Are we, more, are we more interested in impressing each other or are we more interested in getting back, going back? Let's, let's get back to square one again. Okay, what is it? Hogwash. Bunk, garbage, gobbledygook. But there's Jesus. And we breathe easy with each other. What are we doing? Are we going back? Or are we constantly pushing ourselves to get better? So what's the result? Look at 1 Timothy 1. This is the last thing. Verse 16 and 17. This is the goal right here. This is it. This is it. This is the main thing. This is why we're doing what we're doing. This is why we preach the gospel. This is why we do everything that we do. It's why we sing. It's why we take communion. It's why we preach. It's why we teach. It's why we raise kids in the ways of the Lord and in the gospel. Right here. The goal is not that we can sit here and rest. Well, that's a good thing. That's a byproduct. Here's the ultimate goal. Verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason. Here it is. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, 
invisible. The only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And so when we go back and we revisit and we know we're not progressing and we embrace the foremost of sinners and we drop the pose with each other, Jesus is put on display. Perfectly patient. King of ages. Immortal. Invisible. One God. How does he get put on display? Through the foremost of sinners. That's how he gets put on display. And so as we come to the Lord's Supper, I think many of us, just like um, if you ask any elder deacons, when they were appointed, they got real uptight uh, about the position, the appointment, because now you feel like, well, we got to, am I supposed to look different or something? You know, am I supposed to talk different? How impressive. And with that came this, when we decided, hey, I think we need to observe the Lord's Supper every week. I think in the back of many of our minds, we heard it from some of you, but I think we were probably all thinking it. Well, this, it won't be special anymore. I, I don't want to just do it every week and then it becomes monotonous. For the foremost of sinners, you can't wait to get here. You, you run to this table a, a truly knowing that you're the foremost of sinners. You run to the reminder because you need the rest that this provides. You're tired of trying to make something good. You're, trying to, you're tired of trying to impress everybody. You're try, tired of doing the daddy work, the mom work, the husband, the wife, the child work, whatever it is. You're tired. And you need to be reminded and remember that Jesus is sufficient. And so, how could this get old? To the foremost of sinners. Come into this bread, the body and the blood of the perfectly patient King of ages, immortal and invisible, broken for hogwash. Are you kidding me? The King of ages, immortal and invisible, is broken and given to opponents. And he says, come here, eat. Trust me. Rest in me. 1 Corinthians 11. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance. Go back. Remember. I don't, don't run off and try and get better. Remember me. In the same way also he took the cup and after saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and for as often as you drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father as we take this supper we ask you to bless the moment. Bless our hearts here. Give us clarity. Remind us. Renew us. God, help us to remember that you are um, you're unifying yourself with us here. And God, we, uh, we commit now as a body, as I'm praying and everybody else is silent, we commit right now to rely on you as our provision and our salvation that's final, full, complete, and done. And we're so grateful for this gift of this bread and this juice to remind us of, that you are complete 
that you are sufficient and that we trust you. Give us rest in your body and in your blood. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.